Hi, everybody. Today, we get the pleasure of speaking with Jason Smith. Jason is a really exciting guest for me because uh, I've known him for quite a while, actually. He's a four-time founder, uh, and he's had his ups, he's had his downs, and he's learned a lot along the way. He helps and advises uh, other startup companies. He actually dedicates uh, time every week to help other founders. And I know him because I've actually sold to him uh, twice uh, throughout my career. And I've gotten to know him quite well. So this conversation is uh, really packed full of good insights uh, and a lot of good things for early stage startup founders to, to take uh, listen to. So some of the topics that we're going to be listening to are the biggest mistakes early stage founders can make, uh, what is the most important skill that you should have, uh, and this is a skill that's learnable and uh, you could actually improve upon, so don't, don't freak out if you don't have it. We also speak about why founders should say no more often and the dangers of outsourcing your SDR at the start of a company. I wanted to take this opportunity to also tell you guys that Startup Sales, we are actually working with uh, early stage founders and putting on uh, workshops and training seminars for the founders and for the first salespeople, working on building your sales processes, working on your sales skills. Uh, so if you have any questions or you want to talk about that and see what options are out there, feel free to go to our website, startupsales.io. That's startupsales.io. And you could uh, read about us there or send us an email. Uh, you could email me at adam at startupsales.io. So let's get into today's episode with Jason. It's going to be really terrific, and I hope you enjoy it. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Jason, thanks for joining us today. Good to be here. Great. So uh, you're in Vancouver, right? Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Good. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what your background is? Sure. Toronto kid that uh, came out to Vancouver and saw the light, I like to say. <laughs> um, uh, went to university out here and then I graduated at the right time. It was the early days of the first dot-com wave and we built a company that uh, got to about 100 people and got acquired. And so that was kind of my first taste of entrepreneurial success. And when it's your first thing, you naively believe that you could do anything after that. So the next two after that were uh, certainly one was a failure and the other we'll call, um, we'll probably call it a failure. It got to a couple million bucks, but it wasn't ever going to scale. And then I did a fourth company where I wasn't a founder, but I was an early employee and was president of that company. And that one was good growth, went from zero to 500 people when I left um, as president was in customer intelligence, actually. And that begat Clue, my latest company, which I'm CEO and co-founder of, which is competitive intelligence. Wow. Uh, quite, quite the uh, broad range and <laughs> typical story, uh, you know, for the uh, succeed, fail, get up, fail, get up, fail until, until you make it and make it go strong. Yeah, I enjoy putting actually the failures on the resume because it's, uh, I actually think you learn a lot more from the failures and um, I view them as a, a major point of learning. So I love sharing that with others. Of uh, There's always lessons learned in every startup. Yeah, absolutely. So what are your biggest, uh, biggest mistakes that you made as far as sales go? <laughs> okay, I was hoping you'd ask the entrepreneurial question first, but yeah, sure. <laughs> On the uh, on the sales front, you know, I think you've got really common stuff that I did early in my career, which was I've got this great product. I can't wait to tell you about it. Thank you for telling me your name. I'm not going to ask you a question after that. And you proceed to pitch for five minutes and you've lost your prospects, you know, after minute one. So, you know, lesson number one is listen and ask a lot more questions and, you know, use that reverse ratio of 
your recorded calls, you should see 80% of the time the prospect speaking. And it's kind of an obvious one, but it, it deserves kind of re-emphasis because it's so easy to forget because we all get excited about our products and you have to start by truly understanding um, what your prospect's about. And just a, just a point on that, my view of it is just mindset-wise, just remember to be curious. Be curious about your prospect. What are they like? What are they interested in? And that includes everything from their kind of personal aspirations inside of a company to actually the pain that they're going through. So I think mindset-wise, I've walked into everything since that, those early days of saying, be curious. Um, I'd say the, uh, the other key learning is persistence. Uh, you, you can't give up easily. <laughs> and certainly that's, that's never been more true today where, um, yeah, in the beginning you thought your product is so fantastic and shiny. Why can't they be interested in it after the first or maybe even second? And you're kind of, um, you're crestfallen. So, um, now you realize it's seven to 10 at least before anybody is willing to even pay attention to you. And that's your toe in the door moment. Yeah. And then from there you have to kind of iterate. Um, I think, you know, the other kind of subtle ones is the observational skills that are required and what you learn over time, reading your prospect, looking at in the eye and seeing all those nonverbal cues and the tone that they use to understand where you've lost them. And that's increasingly difficult in today's kind of inside sales world where we're doing it on video and half the time your prospect isn't going to show their video. Uh, so uh, half the time the sales challenge. people don't either. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. That's insane to me. You should yeah. always start with video. But the, um, you know, I think that um, observational piece and then if you can't see them picking up the tone of their uh, words and ensuring you've got enough pauses in there to pick that up, you're going to know when you've lost them. And typically you've lost them a lot earlier than you think, you know, it's screen number three of your product. It's or maybe two, not screen number 15, which you, you know, know so well that you're kind of dancing through far too quickly. Yeah. So, um, you know, that observational skills are kind of are, are, are critical. I'd say one more lesson is learn when to say no. Right. Like I think that's been, um, that was, that was difficult in the early days because you just don't want to give up a deal. But what you learn is you're playing for the war, not the battle. And that if you're promising something that you can't commit and you can't deliver on, you're going to be in more trouble. And if your competitors start to do that, you're going to win that business a year later when renewal comes up. So um, say no if it's not a fit and talk about what those gaps are very clearly and then go back to them as you've addressed those gaps. And it represents a much stronger sales cycle. So. And that's also true on not just um, the deal, but, you know, the terms of the deal or the pricing of the deal. No one to say no and walk away. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's really important for, for the founders. You know, I, coming more uh, from the sales side, I, I know I've worked with a lot of founders that have been like, no, we want this deal. We want it. I was like, it's not good for you. That we're, we'll get them. And then in a couple of months, they're going to churn and then they're going to walk away. It's better to keep the relationship open because then they trust us more because we were honest with them. And then six months down the road, we'll get them for a lifetime. Uh, so true. It's interesting you say that you're, yeah, I have such a reverse perspective there where usually that's the VP sales or the yeah. salespeople <laughs> saying, I want that deal. And it's the founder saying, I can see churn coming. So yeah, uh, interesting that you've seen the reverse perspective. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm here in Israel. So many of the founders, are, most of the founders are coming from more of a technical background. So, so they... They don't want to talk to the clients generally. They don't want to, anything to do with that. They just want to give it to me and like, okay, go, go, go do your thing. <laughs> and now that I'm working on, with founders, I'm trying to tell them, no, you need to be out there selling. You need to know how to talk to them. You need to, what you said, be listening to them and not just hearing what they say, but how they say it, what words they use, uh, the tone of their voice, so important. Well, and a bit of a tangent just on your technical co-founder or techno founder issue, which is, you know, prevalent today. Um, even early in my career, I viewed sales as used car sales. I viewed sales as pushing something that people didn't want. And, and then I think, you know, as you educate yourself through, through multiple companies and experiences, you realize that everything is sales. Um, you're pitching for money at sales. You're pitching your business. This is sales. Everything you do is sales. And um, as soon as you start realizing that what you're passionate about, you're talking about, it's kind of light switches being turned on more than it is you've got to buy this jalopy. Um, then all of a sudden those technical founders get a lot more open and willing to quote unquote sell. Yeah. 
There's a good book by Daniel Pink, uh, Everyone Sells, I think it was called. And uh, he talks about that a lot. Is, you know, no matter what you're doing, even dating is sales uh, at the end of the day. So people need to change that outlook of used car salesmen and, and know that there's, there's an art and there's a lot of depth behind actually being a good salesperson. It does. It's, it's, I wish they taught that more in school, actually. I wish they said that sales was a viable, legitimate career instead of training them for other, you know, uh, <laughs> accreditations. So like, um, but I think we're getting there. I think people realize that you have to be able to talk about your product passionately. And then there's a skill, not just, um, an art to sales. And once you learn that and, um, then a lot of more magic happens with your business. Absolutely. All right. So you're helping a lot of clients, uh, a lot of companies as well. You come across a lot of other founders. What are some of the mistakes that you've seen that they make uh, re- with regards to sales? Uh, um, well, you know, I've seen, a, I've seen a bunch of mistakes and, you know, similar to the lessons that I've learned, I've seen that repeated over and over again in the early stage and kind of first time founders, um, particularly the jumping on deals that they probably shouldn't. Um, and that kind of, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a long tail to that where you bring in a deal, particularly with a big client and you're doing a bunch of early stage dev work that you might not, you shouldn't do, frankly, it's on, it's not your roadmap. It's something that suits their objective and their agenda. So I find, and particularly the early stage, you can set yourself down a path where you're granting a lot of dev path, um, for, um, uh, um, big clients that, you know, are affecting your, your trajectory for all of your other clients. So, and that's a super difficult one because the big clients wave a lot more money at you. And so you are going to take some of that business, but it is back to learning how to say no at the right point And when you have to actually stop it, and turn off um, that revenue spigot from a big client, because there's a bigger pot by going through a number of other smaller clients that are on your trajectory that do fit your vision. So that honestly is one of the biggest ones because in the early days, you're just so desperate for product market fit that you're, you're trying to find a client that's going to give you some money um, that is somewhat based on what your product is. Yeah. And so when they ask for a bunch of stuff, you'll, you'll maybe head down the wrong path a couple of times. So that's certainly one um, just as a CEO one, which is maybe slightly less sales, but a CEO one is, that concept of when you think you're 80% done, you're probably 20% of the way there and you got to plan accordingly. So it's true of sales, it's true of building a company, but you know, the number of times that I think we're actually quite a, quite a bit of the way there, whether it's product or whether it's a deal, um, you're actually closer to 20% half the time. And uh, you've got to plan accordingly for resources that are going to extend you. Um, I've also seen, you know, based on that technical founder issue, I've seen certainly a massive resilience to sales. I don't do sales. That's not my thing. And in a lot of technical founders, it takes them a long time to warm up to the concept that they need to be the ones actually actively selling. So um, that's a massive point that I see over and over again, a super reluctance and a feeling of, no, I'm a computer scientist. I'm not a salesperson and somebody else is to do that. And they'll often get themselves into a bad cycle of hiring um, what they believe is their panacea white knight that's going to come in and sell all this magical business. A, they don't understand the technical depth that you've actually created as a vision for your, uh, your company. And B, you've put uh, unrealistic demands on, on them in a, in a fairly early stage. So until you get in and you're featured as the fire, you don't really understand that. So um, it's kind of like you got to have your bad medicine and get out there and you realize it. And then there's also, uh, there's nothing like hearing it directly from a prospect or a client of how ugly your baby is. Um, (laughs) It's pretty easy to fire the salesperson that says nobody seems to like your product. And you're going to say, nah, you're a lousy salesperson. But as soon as you're out there, you realize it's a lot uglier in the jungle. So um, I really encourage a lot of founders to be the salesperson for the first, depending on your size, you know, 50 deals, B2B sales, you're doing it. And then you're influencing a lot um, of deals subsequently until you get to that VP comfort level. Yeah, I totally agree. I always tell founders that they need to be getting at least the first, 
I say even less, but it also depends on the, the deal size, but 10, 15, 20 deals, just so that they could at least know if the salesperson they hire is doing it, is telling you the right things or not telling you the right things. Uh, so many times the, the founders will, will hire a salesperson that was great salesperson at another company, but it was a big company and they already had the infrastructure built and everything for them. All they had to do is come in and operate the system instead of making the system themselves. That's a huge one. Like we're interviewing a bunch of salespeople right now that are coming from, you know, big brand names and, um, and that's been their experience. And when you can hide behind uh, a brand name, you, you open a lot of doors when you're clue and you're tiny and nobody knows who you are, you really have to be on the ball with your value prop. And you've got 30 seconds to make that happen, to open the door, to kind of create your next couple minutes that maybe creates your 15 minutes that maybe creates your hour demo. So um, when you can hide behind a big brand, that's difficult. So you know, there's a whole another tangent on hiring and trying to find those people that at different stages, seed and series A stage, certainly seed stage, that entrepreneurial salesperson that can create the vision and paint the picture for folks, turn on the light switches, I like to say, um, for people. Um, those are very different than the ones that are used to kind of a, a playbook oriented. You've joined Salesforce. You've gone through your training for six weeks. You're shadowing and you're doing things on a very step-by-step -step fashion and your leads are given to you or you dig up a handful and you've got a process and you move on. And your market is in the many, many, many millions. You know, a lot of early stage companies, they don't have millions of potential buyers. They've got thousands of potential buyers. And so yeah. um, they need to bring in. And there's actually another piece to that, which is there's a lot, there's, there's a tendency now to outsource a bunch of your early sales to um, kind of the sales automation, sales development world, where they'll dig up the leads for you. They'll create the interest for you. And, um, and that's also super dangerous because you, now you don't get the feel for the market directly. It's, it's not a bad issue uh, to have down the line when you're looking to scale. Um, but in the early days, you're, you're, you're so sensitive to all those little inputs that you're getting from the market that the founder needs to sell and the new people that you bring in need to be able to sell it, but also take whatever they learn from those prospects and bring it back into the product world, right? Like, this is what I keep hearing. And not just this is what they ask for, but this is reading between the lines what I think they're yeah. actually needing. So it's a very different type of sales hire that you're looking at early seed stage, angel seed stage to you know, series A, B. It's very true. And especially since, as you said, uh, some companies have millions of pro potential prospects, but some companies only have thousands. And if you hire somebody that doesn't really care, they'll be professional, but they don't mind burning the bridge. They don't mind closing the door. And then to reopen that door could take years before you, you're able to do that successfully. So you really want to make sure it's internal to keep that door open if, if, you, still, if you fail, even if you do it yourself. So, so there's stage, right? So you're in a big company, small company. And then there's the type of company that, yeah, when your market is really small, um, you're doing bigger ACV deals and you've got you know thousands, maybe tens of thousands you're going to burn through that market very quickly from blasting emails. And if your market is your, you know, your many millions, yeah, you can turn and burn a little more and not worry about it. I always think there's downstream brand implications to all of that. But, um, um, you know, I think you need to kid glove it a little more when you've got only thousands in your market. And so you're going to learn a lot, but you're also going to make sure that you're playing for the long game. And that if you seeded somebody properly, by understanding their business and delivering them some value with each iteration of your selling process that you're going to end up with a, a, pro, a, a deal down the road if it's not today. Yeah, definitely. So you, you said earlier that you're, you're going through the process of hiring people now. Uh, I, I saw on, uh, I think it was LinkedIn or, or Twitter on your account. Yeah. You just hired somebody in the, what did they fly in and you, you picked them up from the airport. Yeah, they moved, uh, they moved to Vancouver for Clue for, um, um, oh, I like to think it's for Clue. It's probably for Vancouver, but uh, <laughs> uh, there is, uh, yeah, we, uh, you know, you try and do those things. This is, this, is, uh, this is an employee that doesn't know anybody in Vancouver, you know, grabs a rental apartment. And so we, uh, yeah, we put, we did a little handmade sign and we greet her at the airport and 
trying to make her feel welcome. And I actually had the entire sales team, this is an account executive, the entire sales team reach out to her and schedule um, kind of individual meetings before she would even, you know, been hired um, or maybe it was just when she was hired, but certainly before she got here. And I think, I think the impression that you can make on, um, uh, on your employee or your new employee with those kind of little things, when they're making a big dramatic life moves they're moving to, you know, a completely different city where they don't know anybody, it can have a massive impact. And certainly in a startup world, you kind of are a little bit family or at least team. Um, and, you know, they're looking for a bit of a social outlet through that startup that they're joining. So the more you can actually uh, make them feel at home inside your startup and in your, your city, I think the better it's going to be for you. Yeah, it was, uh, I was really impressed with that, with that. And even as an outsider, not knowing the full story, it was, uh, it was really nice. Of course, was that your drawing? <laughs> uh, I wish I could take credit of it. No, uh, it wasn't. Yeah. Good. So if I'm an early stage, uh, seed funded or even maybe not seed funded uh, company, how can I, what are some tips to, to first get your first couple sales as the founder? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a bit of a playbook now written on that. So you're, you're going to leverage your first degree network in a big way. Um, if you don't have your investors, um, you're going to, you know, talk to profs that you, uh, you know, went to school with that might know somebody in industry. You're going to talk to your friend that got their job at the bank that might be able to introduce you. You're going to work your, your tiny network. If you're fresh out of school and you're in your first company, um, as much as possible, because the network is what gets you at least I'll listen to you conversation easiest. And then you're, you know, progressively going down the next step of really understanding your, your ICP really well and um, um, getting your list together and now developing your messaging and your, what your cadence is going to look like and all the traditional things. But for the first sales, it's like, it's, you are the founder. It is your responsibility to go and get them. And you're going to do everything you possibly can to um, get the right customer. So, you know, actually I'll back it all up and say, you got to start by making sure like, what is the definition of that perfect customer and make sure you nail that. And you've got that crystal clear in your head of, it would be amazing if, and it's not just, it's Google or a Facebook or a big brand. It's, this type of characteristic there at this stage of the business, the career progression of my prospects going to look like this. The uh, budget has already been defined or it's not been defined. You know, we're creating a bit of a budget line item out of this new product. Really understand what that um, intended customer profile looks like. And then you're going to work your network to try and find everything you can. And, and I, and never just blast out to your network. Hey, I'm looking for a new client. It's, I am specifically looking for product marketers that are in mid to large enterprise companies, specifically these 15 companies, if you know anyone in them, if you could get me an introduction to somebody there and you're going to hustle. And so um, I think it starts with clearly understanding your target and then providing that more crisp definition to your network. And also don't be lazy on your LinkedIn network, right? Like you're, you're going to have maybe a smaller LinkedIn network, but your friends have connections. Don't just ask them, go through their connections and actually understand if they are connected to somebody and if it matters for you to ask specifically for that introduction. Because half the time people don't remember who their connections are. They just look yeah. at it as one more email, even if they like you, yeah. they'll pass it over. So, um, yeah, I'd start with your ICP and then make sure that you actually do the work for the people that you're asking the favor for leverage that network initially. And then, um, listen, your first 20 customers are your apostles do everything to get them, but also do everything to delight them. Yeah. So, you know, a bit of a finer point on that big customer that can totally dictate what your, you know, your, your trajectory will be for your product. But um, there is, you're going to do more for those first 20 than you're going to do for anybody else because they're the ones that are going to sing your praises and they'll all know 10 more people. So your next 200 are going to come from likely the network that those 20 have. So um, yeah, not only getting them, but making sure they're delighted. Absolutely. I think it's also important, uh, as you said, on your ICP to be as 
specific as you can, because so many people are afraid like, no, I want this, this person as well, this person. No, it's your ideal client profile. Which ones are the easiest for you to close? And that fits the best. It doesn't mean you can't take from other people, but the more specific you are, you're going to get that person. And that that will be a better fit than maybe the the other twenty percent that uh, are the outliers. Well, that's so true. And you know, back to you, my advice that I've given to other founders: there's a fear of pigeonholing, right? So, and I think the venture capital community has made this even more challenging because you can't go and try and pitch venture money um, and say, "I've got this tiny little niche." that I'm going to win on. And they look at it and go, thanks, you're out. Market size is too small. So you've got this weird mix um, bent perspective as a founder CEO of saying, okay, I need to be this multi-billion dollar business, but there's two of us and a whiteboard right now. <laughs> and Or it's 10 of us and a whiteboard right now. Um, but niche to win. It's always about niche to win. And the more targeted you could get of actually your ideal customer profile. So and that's company, but also the people within it, right? Like what specific role and what are the characteristics of those people? Have they been 20 years in that role? Are they, you know, are they nine to five and never going to look for innovation or are they floating through that role for a year en route to another role? And um, those are the innovators that might take a flyer on something. new. So the more specific you can be, the better. And again, this isn't going to define you for the next hundred, 200, 3000 customers nail it for your first 20. And, um, and then you're going to learn a lot from those 20. Man, that one was wrong. That one was right. <laughs> and I actually, I, when I build my companies, I, I very specifically expect a lot of churn in the first year or two years, because I know I'm selling to a bunch of people that I'm, I'm, I might be wrong. Like, yeah. You know, you're guessing wrong. You've got your ideal, you know, you've sold it to three and you go, mm, maybe not so ideal. You know, the, what's the next week? So don't be afraid of that, you know? So um, it's basically picking a point, drawing your line in the sand, attacking that, taking your learning and iterating. Uh, yeah. Again, this, this is old sage advice that many smarter people than I have, I mean, I am, <laughs> have given. All right, good. Um, <clears throat> what are some of the things that you've done at the start that at uh, your first company, if you could, if you could remember, uh, that you did with sales, maybe not the actual sale part, but like in building the infrastructure behind it, that really helped, uh, allow you to be, um, acquired. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that first company was early days web and it was a web applications company. Um, so largely we were selling more services than we were a product. So um, maybe slightly different from, you know, the selling on the subsequent companies that were all product based. Um, but it was, you know, those early days, like literally it was, it was just following the map that I just gave you. It was putting up that ICP. Um, at that point, it was pulling up magazines and looking at the top 100 lists and saying, are any of these companies like that? And it wasn't easy to find a bunch of information on them. You literally had to pull investor reports and that kind of thing. It wasn't. There's no Google. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pre-Google. It was, yeah. you know, there's this thing called Yahoo. Does anyone remember that? That was, uh, <laughs> yeah. so, um, yeah, that was, that, those were interesting days because, um, um, I'd say, you know, maybe a bit of a tangent for your listeners here, but the, I think what's interesting was we were selling the web more than we were selling even our product. We were selling a concept that people had to get their head around more than a product. And I think that's been a hallmark of all the companies I've been involved in. I'm not going into highly competitive budgets already there, rip and replace businesses. I'm actually going into either overlooked or completely new categories and trying to build you know, something around those categories. And they might not be completely different than what they're, you know, they've been done a different way previously, but, um, you know, you're going in and telling people what the web is <laughs> back then <laughs> that was early on that first company. Um, and if I, you know, even if I, you know, use the corollary of what we're doing with clue today, like, um, people don't have competitive intelligence budgets typically, but they all have competitors and they're losing deals directly to those competitors. And so as soon as you illustrate that key point that their competitors are changing all the time, they're not on top of them. And you've got sales forces of hundreds of people winging it 
you know, yeah. with what they know about the competition and getting educated by their customers themselves about, uh, or their prospects saying, actually, your competitor does do that. I just got a demo from them. Yeah. I mean, you know, those are, those are embarrassing moments. And so as soon as I, you can illustrate those kind of concepts, then you, then you have the potential to sell the product. And so, um, I'd say when I look back, you know, the string that's consistent through all of my companies has been, has been really trying to say, well, what is the latent pain that you don't realize that you have a thorn in your foot and you're walking around with it and you've just gotten used to that. And I need to really just show you that there's a thorn. And if I pull that out, it's going to hurt a lot less. Um, so that's kind of a conceptual selling uh, approach that um, then informs what our decks look like. It informs how we talk about things. We spend a lot more time talking about the vision and what life is going to look like or the world's going to look like in the future and how that plays into today. And then really poking around for that pain and something that they didn't realize, you know, that they had. Um, so, you know, it's not entirely different to every, uh, all the sale, every other sale, but it is, um, I think it's, uh, in my line of businesses, it's been, um, you, you've got to tell something new that they aren't necessarily budget line item and know how to make the feature benefit trade-offs yet. Um, it's, should I even look at that? Will that be a career maker for me? Is that something that's worthy of investing? Is the pain large enough? Um, all of those pieces more so than, yeah, you got a CRM solution. We're using Salesforce now. Should we switch to HubSpot? I don't know, <laughs> Oracle, right? Like it's a, it's a different type of sale. I think it's a, it's a more fun uh, type of sale, educating the market. And, and you're not just an order taker. Yeah, you should switch to here because we're going to be cheaper. And we've got this, we got this extra benefit that you don't have with Salesforce. Like it's not as complex of a sale and it's not as fun. It's interesting though, because then, you know, you start to look at your hires back to your recruitment question, right? And so if I pull somebody from Salesforce, they have a very different machine oriented mindset. They're uh, excellent salespeople within that machinery, but they come into my world and they get lost, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're not conceptual sellers. They can't paint the vision in the picture. Um, and so you have to, I look for more diamonds in the rough than when I'm hiring for salespeople. I'd love to have the skill, but if frankly, they've got too much skill within the big board machine, it's a detriment, not a benefit for me. Mm -hmm. So as much as I love uh, your comment there and saying, yeah, I mean, I love those types of businesses and selling that it demands a different type of sales mindset and a different process. And then, you know, ultimately, as soon as you've created something of interest, competitors do flock to it. If you've created some kind of market so sooner or later, the budget line item does appear and it becomes a ribbon replace. But certainly at the seed stage and series A stage, um, you have room to move with a little less competitive threat rip and replace world than, uh, than you do in traditional industries. Yeah. And by then, you've already educated the market and you've become a market leader, hopefully, by, by that time. That's a theory and 80% market share. <laughs> and, uh, multiple billions in valuation. Uh, the dream. The dream. The exactly. tech dream. The tech card stream that gives us entrepreneurs like um, the trough of disillusionment every other day of, my God, I'm failing. No, wait a minute. I'm not failing. That is just another TechCrunch article that dictates something. Yes. <laughs> All right. You said something that, uh, uh, about pain points. And I want to cover that because I think so many yeah. founders uh, skip over the importance of pain points. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I teach uh, all the founders I'm working with is for, starting right from the beginning at your, as simple as your elevator pitch, you should be including your pain point in there that you solve. And when I, when I talk to people about that, they don't even really understand what their pain points are. So I tell them, okay, let's write down your top three pain points that you think. And then that's what you need to work on. You need to be speaking to your clients or your prospects and seeing, is this really a pain point? How much of a pain point is this? Because you may think it's a pain point, but for them, it's like, yeah, it's a pain point, but it's, it's low on the list, like number 10. It's not actually my number one thing that you fix for me. So, yeah, I think that's a great point, you know, to pick up on it. I think there's the, um, and there's, it's probably a, it's, it's a multi-layered issue, right? So you need to understand your pain points that you're solving. 
And if you're a new sales rep, you, you're going to learn what those pain points are by you know, reading them, listening to other reps and how they talk about them. Um, but you really need to ingest them to the point where you can pull them out through the reveal of a series of questions, right? So you're always asking the questions to the prospect to try and understand it. In the back of your head, you're hoping that these questions lead to you know, your goldmine of the key pain point or one of your five key pain points that you want them to have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you're never just going to jump on them and go, do you feel this pain, right? Like, you know, <laughs> You've got this pain, right? Right. Yeah. So you're, you're going to talk and you're going to dance around the issue a little bit of, you know, what we've seen with a lot of other clients is there, there can be a challenge with um, data collection, you know, and finding all this stuff. And it takes a lot of time. What do you guys do for data collection? You know, I didn't ask you, you have that problem. And I didn't assume that you were like my other clients. Now I'm saying, I've seen this with my other clients. Are you like that? And what's it work? What's it look like inside your company? And it's back to that first point that I made. It's when you're curious, you you start to phrase it that way and you ask yeah. it that way, and and that curiosity will lead you down. Oh, well, that the, these that and what you thought might be the pain point that you were going to question your way down to this goldmine of discovery of you have this pain ends up being a completely different area where the pinball ends up, and yeah. uh, that. That I think is that's you can only do that when you fully digested what those pain points are and then put a layer of question and probing on top of that, which um, and then on top of that, putting the genuine curiosity that enables you to riff on those questions and maybe even include and add more questions to it, but at least shape them and ask them in a slightly different way that is in line with that that prospect is. So. Um, you know, we know in sales, it's all about discovery of what their pain is. And then you're hoping for some alignment with what your your solution is. And I think that's also a difference between services and products, right? So um, to a product company, everything looks like a nail and you're a hammer. And it's <laughs> like, you know, oh, your pain is that I've got a hammer for you. And yeah. sometimes they do need a screwdriver. And that's when you have to say no. And Services companies will much more easily sell with a, uh, yeah, we can build that even if they haven't, right? So yeah. whatever it is, they can custom do something. Um, but yeah, it's all about discovery and uh, of pain, but not being uh, methodical about it. In uh, Sorry, that's the wrong way of saying it. It's methodical in a way that is genuinely curious, that has the question bank that gets you to the pain point not starting the other way around and saying, here's the pain, does this fit, right? Yeah. I think you're spot on. And I want to add to that is also once you do find the pain or once they bring it up by, from your question, let them talk about it as much as you can. Uh, the psychology of it is let them sell themselves on their how much pain it is for them. Don't interrupt them. Don't, let, don't stop them. I had a great, great um, uh, sales pitch. Actually, it's now turned into our single biggest client at Clue. But in the very first pitch, so it was your your classic. This is a big company. You know, it's a, it's I think it's a hundred thousand employees. It's a big company, and so as a tiny little startup to get in there, it's one that we really wanted. And so when the door finally opened to actually get the uh, <coughs> excuse me to get the demo hour that our SDR had finally opened the door and then he, and then I get involved and, um, and I'm in that, in that pitch and I'm talking, you know, about the questions and trying to uncover a little bit of the pain and I'm getting this, we're pros, you guys are idiots, Like You can't show us anything that you've got that we haven't thought about. We're pros, we're pros, we're pros. And then there was a point where I'm like, I got to stop. And I'm like, so let's flip this. What, what I miss, like, why, why, why would you even bother talking to us? Is there, is there, you guys seem like, you know, exactly what's going on. I don't think I can help you. And suddenly it made them pause and they're like, well, you know, why don't we show you and talk about some of the things that we're doing, which we had tried to get out of them before, but we couldn't. And as soon as they started doing that, they were the ones that self-revealed the pain in a way that was magical. Literally, they took over the demo and started showing us what they were doing internally and going, ah, yeah. And as they're demoing it, they're going, this is so frustrating how this works. (laughs) We're literally writing notes about, okay, that was frustrating. And they walked through 
through their own demo of their own internal system, which started from a point of ego and pride and turned into a pain reveal. Yeah. That then by the end of the call, we could say, well, this is, you know, it was an interesting point that you made there. This is how our solution helps for that particular pain. And and then you you could open it up. So sometimes the ego can get in the way of being able to get those pain questions because you're a vendor, you're supposed to dance. And, um, you know, you can call those bluffs. And uh, in our case, it turned into a magic reveal of pain that turned into a biggest deal. Wow, nice. It's a, it's a perfect example uh, and a good story. So congratulations on, on that big deal. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was a good one. Yeah. Good. Um, your company, uh, your first one, now it was a while ago, but your first one was bootstrapped and clue, you raised some money. You, uh, I think you raised a 5 million seed. Um, what's the difference uh, as far as how you approach sales? Uh, do you hire quickly or do you, what do you do differently? Yeah, I mean, certainly when you have venture money, you can move faster and there is an expectation to move faster. So um Yes, uh, I would say that's the major <laughs> difference. When you are bootstrapped, you are so cash flow aware um, that you do a lot more things yourself, um, which is probably a lot less effective and slows your speed. And so fundamentally, I think the pivot point is on speed. Venture money gives you the luxury of speed. And it comes with um, kind of like a drug awareness label, right? Like you don't want to get addicted to having money and doing stupid things and spending it unnecessarily for the sake of speed. And I've, I've seen a lot of companies that have done that. They start to get, um, you know, they just keep looking at the next funding round rather than actually and spending money on things that they probably shouldn't. Um, so instead of thinking through that distribution of funds on, is it more beneficial to amp up our marketing for demand gen versus hiring another bank of SDRs? You know, that analysis isn't done. It's just go, 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 move fast. Like spend on that, spend on that, spend on that. That was, that's certainly the fundamental difference of, of what you have the potential to do with venture funding. You don't have that luxury when you're bootstrapping. You're just, you're trying to get one client to the next, to the next, and then you can add another body. And, um, and that's what you had to do. You know, and the other difference was that was my first company and I was straight out of school and there wasn't a VC in the world that would have believed that I could, we could do anything, right? So um, <laughs> it's a different time. And then once you've got a bit of a track record, you can actually raise some money in a way that gives you the luxury of doing it. But even now, I would say I, um, I try very much not to fall victim to the, you've got a bunch of cash in the bank, go over hire, have to fire. Um, and particularly at the product market fit stage at seed, like you still are trying to nail product market fit. So I view them as calculated money spent experiments in a very calculated methodical thesis driven way. And literally I'm looking at, does that SDR drive more demand or does SEM SEO work better? Or does let's just try LinkedIn ads and retargeting from our website or frankly does investing in demos, um, and views on our website that lead to a demo sign up better on the website. And I'm literally looking at like 20, 30, 50, 100 grand chunks and saying, I want to AB that. And yeah. it gets a little mucky, obviously, after a while, but it, that is the luxury that you have in a venture funded world. Um, the other difference is, you know, again, back to the, I have to talk um, about how big and the potential um, of our business can be when you raise venture money. And I always find that a bit of a conundrum. Like, I certainly do. I believe that there's massive potential. Yes. But as a five-time entrepreneur, I'm super realistic of the failure rate and all the challenges and the changes that are going to go with it. And so to talk about that when literally, yeah, you're five guys in a whiteboard, it feels odd to do that. Whereas bootstrap, you don't get sidetracked with any of that. You just put your head down and you get freaking revenue. And then yeah. you build more product based on that revenue. And there's a, there's a purity to that that is quite nice. But uh, in today's game, it's really hard to build a SaaS product on a purely bootstrapped level if you're going to open, if you're in a market that is potentially massive, because the first mover will, with venture money, just move faster than you. Yeah. Uh, even if you're the first mover, 
if you're still bootstrapped a year later, somebody could come in with venture money and then hire a bunch of people to develop it uh, better than your product. You've got the, I've always said that to them, to my team of saying like, look, if we've got 10 people and they've got 40, so they've got a four to one ratio. So I think our team bats higher than others. So maybe we're better by a hundred percent than even one other people. They're still double us. Yeah. So uh, there's a cold, hard reality to numbers and money um, that the venture world can give you. And um, yeah, so increasingly in our world, it's hard to, if you're going to, if you're going to niche and stay in the niche, you can bootstrap. Um, but if you're really going to try and own a category, it tends to lean to the venture path. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're investing in some companies, right? Yep. Okay. What are you looking for when it comes to, from the sales perspective in uh, companies? Well, I mean, from an investment standpoint, I, I clearly look at the entrepreneur um, is my number one driver at the early stage because any investment I'm doing is tiny and it's, um, it's angel driven, right? So, um, so at that stage, it's, I've got this crazy idea. Um, it could be interesting. And I know that the ideas could iterate 15 times before it actually is a real market. So I'm looking at the grit, resilience, hustle, and drive of that entrepreneur. And uh, the sales piece is a big factor of that. If I don't believe that they can get out and hustle and actually get those first 10 deals themselves, I want to invest. Um, if they have uh, a brilliant technical um, development, I'd still be looking for well, how are they going to complement that from a sales standpoint. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's almost a fundamental criteria for me. If I don't see in the founder themselves or in their co-founding team or in their first potential hire um, that they've got some sales um, credit. And by first potential hire, like I just think sales is so fundamental that they've got to be part of that system. And I'm, I, I'm skewed in the B2B world, right? I'm not talking yeah. about B2C here. Um, I'm very skewed in the B2B world where there is a sales driven um, and I'm less from the freemium world. I'm more in the enterprise world. So from that perspective and where I've done my small investments, it's been, uh, it's been around understanding if great technical uh, innovation, how do people know about it? Yeah. How do people, how do people become aware of it? And it's, it's usually those companies, it's a sales problem, but it can be a marketing problem if you're B2C and more freemium. Okay. Well, Jason, uh, I want to uh, thank you for your time today. Is there a way for people to, to reach out to you if they have questions? Yeah, happy to. Uh, so I'm Jason at clue.com. Anybody can send me an email directly. And um, I try to dedicate time each week to entrepreneurs. Uh, largely, that's been based in Vancouver. Um, uh, so I'm happy to offer any of the learning that I've had to uh, folks out there that are helping build companies. Great. Thank you, Jason. Very welcome. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at adam at startupsales.io. Great, Jason. Let's finish off with the final five. What is your favorite sales or leadership book? Uh, so I'm really into the one that I'm currently reading. It's called uh, Principles by Ray Dalio. And he's actually an investment guy, um, but he just talks about how he methodically works through his principles of uh, what he's learned on each time he's gotten ass kicked in the market <laughs> or that he's actually done, uh, he's won. Um, and so the inscription of those principles and the iterative learning that you get um, I find instructive. Um, it's a big, fat, thick book and excuse maybe a little more investment heavy for the average salesperson. But from a leadership standpoint, I think it's super important to learn from your mistakes and your successes, inscribe them and become principled about it. Very much. Do you have somebody that you follow or lead for uh, follow or read for sales and leadership ideas? <laughs> So I'm, I'm addicted to Reed Hoffman's Masters of Scale um, uh, podcast. I, like, I just can't get enough of that one. I love how they dig into kind of some of the undersides of the stories there. So Reed's, uh, Reed's kind, of, kind of the all-star one in, in my world. Um, 
and it's a little less sales and a little more CEO. From a sales standpoint, um, there's a guy that I met uh, through my network, uh, Pete Kazanji, um, that he runs um, he runs a kind of a mailing list called the Modern Sales Pro uh, mailing list, and it's um, it's an invite only mailing list, and the people on that are phenomenal. And I don't even know if I should be sharing it right now, but he's he <laughs> in particular. I'm not okay. Thankfully, good. <laughs> Pete, uh, Pete is a super active moderator on that, and he is—he's uh, got amazing instincts for sales. So, uh, anything Pete writes, I read. Excellent. Yeah, I tried to uh, find some guests for this podcast uh, on that forum, and then he he quickly deleted my post and and uh, sent me a message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pete's Pete's pretty strict about that list. Yeah. All right. Are you available twenty four seven? No, no, I have boundaries. I mean, I have a family and, um, and what I've realized in building companies is it's a, um, it's, it's a war. It's not an individual battle. And if you don't recharge your batteries, you're in trouble. So vacations, I turn off almost entirely. If I re if I might flip through emails, um, and if they're super <laughs> urgent, I might reply to them, but I really, really, uh, I, I really try and focus on family time and recharge time on the vacations. And then uh, Sunday, well, most of Sunday is sacred. Sunday evening, I start to get back into it. And Saturdays are sacred. So generally weekends. Um, but during the week, it's, uh, it's, so I'll call it um, 24 is far too long. If you call me at three in the morning, I'd be upset. <laughs> so uh, I'll go with, uh, I'll go with, uh, let's call it 18 and five. 18 and five. There we go. What is your favorite tool used for sales besides your own? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't mention clue. Uh, okay. No, I would honestly like, um, um, so there's tons of fantastic tools out there and I could go on with a list. Like we use persist IQ, but, uh, outreach and sales law phenomenal. They're kind of market leaders. Persist IQ happens to be a founder. I know, um, great tool. Um, but the one I'm going to say is zoom. Like, I think it is like for the first time we're actually having video calls without issues. And yeah. it is a miracle that it's actually happening. And, um, and, uh, back to the nonverbal and the tone cues, if you can, um, we constantly encourage people to have their video. Our company is video on all the time. We have a nonstop 24 seven zoom. Any remote worker has an iPad dedicated with zoom on all the time. We're very much video on. So zoom to me has been an absolute game changer. And uh, I'll put a plug in also for the the courses and the gongs of the world. And I haven't used them yet, but my gosh, every salesperson that I've talked to, sales leader, has been in awe of what those things can do from a training standpoint. So yeah. a couple tools. Very much. Good. Last question. What one piece of advice do you have for all the sales leaders and, uh, and founders out there? Well, excuse a little more founder than sales leader, but um, I'll go back to if you think you're 80% of the way done, you're only 20%, plan accordingly. <laughs> there you go. The, it, the deal's not done until the, the check's in the bank. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. Great. Jason, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Take care.